As with so many of my long-held evangelical beliefs, I have recently been carefully thinking about the doctrine of hell and of eternal punishment. Now, I grew up understanding it as an absolute certainty and something that all Orthodox Christians had believed since Jesus apparently taught that doctrine in the Gospels. But, you know, I'm not so convinced anymore. Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, For Two Billion Years. As I've considered the entirety of Scripture, how God presents himself to mankind through the Bible as a whole, and as I've looked at the specific verses that are used to define and support the doctrine of hell and eternal punishment, I've come to the fairly strong conclusion that what I grew up believing is just not supportable. Thousands of pages have been written on this topic by a great many extremely intelligent and careful authors and theologians, and I really don't think I can significantly add to the existing body of work. I am, however, convinced that a careful survey of all the available writings, without insisting on a given starting position, will not consistently lead to the traditional evangelical view of eternal conscious torment, or ECT. So, rather than repeat that work for you, I instead recommend that you read some excellent articles for a different perspective. And the author of the website, The Brazen Church, repeatedly points out in a series of articles, and in responding to various comments uh, made on those articles, that his intent is not to make a definitive case for any given particular doctrine, but instead to make it abundantly clear that a fiery hell intended for eternal conscious torment is not the only defensible doctrinal position. And more to the point, that may actually be a very weak position. And on the blog, I have posted links to those articles for you. Now, the author does a very thorough job of responding to tons of comments challenging his viewpoints. And the comment sections are actually far longer than the articles, and they're full of good challenges, but even better responses by the author. So I really do think it's worth reviewing them carefully if you want to understand a different viewpoint. Also, some verses that support universalism are linked on another blog that I that I share on Crucible of Thought, and he points out that there are really just as many verses supporting the salvation of every human as there are supporting eternal punishment or annihilation. Now, having read all these comments, many comments opposing this universalism viewpoint, and plenty of articles both pro and con, I think the gist is that people from the evangelical faith generally want God to eternally punish bad people. And they just cannot come to grips with the idea that God is overwhelmingly portrayed in the Bible as a restorative God, not a punitive God. Now, I won't dig into the finer points of these arguments here. I encourage you to do your own research with open eyes to what the scriptures actually say. and I mean all of the scriptures. I will, however, tell you a short story that may catch your attention. First, let me frame things a little bit. I have decided that the universalism position, the idea that all mankind, every man and woman and child, will end up being saved by the Lord eventually, is the most consistent with what I read in the entirety of the Bible, and I think it's the most consistent with God's presentation of his persistent and his diligent love for man, and with his being, quote, unwilling that any should perish, unquote. And above all, I firmly believe that Christ paid the penalty for sin for whoever makes him their Lord and Savior. But with that said, I 
do also very much believe that Scripture is clear about punishment after death. But even then, Revelations 20 describes even hell or Hades itself being cast into the lake of fire. So what do I do with all that complexity? Now, God is a God of restoration, not destruction. And by far the most consistent picture which the Bible presents to us is one of God diligently and persistently working to restore mankind to relationship with himself and to restore the relationship between humans. In fact, more than a few theologians assert that the word most commonly translated as punishment with regard to the afterlife could actually better be translated as correction in every case. And of course, correction is about restoration, not about destruction. Also, the Greek word that's almost always translated eternal or everlasting by most modern Bibles, and I think it's pronounced ionios, is really better translated age to age, a long period of time, but not one without end. And uh, as the Strong's Concordance for uh, the word number 166 says, ionos or ionios is an adjective derived from ion, or an age, having a particular character and quality, or properly age-like, or like and age, i.e. an age characteristic, the quality describing a particular age, or figuratively, the unique quality or reality of God's life at work in the believer, i.e. as the Lord manifests his self-evident life as it is in his sinless abode of heaven. And it refers to eternal, or 166, Life operates simultaneously outside of time, inside of time, and beyond time, i.e. what gives time its everlasting meaning for the believer through faith, yet is also time-independent. And it notes that 166 does not focus on the future per se, but rather on the quality of the age that it relates to. Thus, believers live in eternal life right now, experiencing this quality of God's life now as a present possession. And note the Greek present tense of having eternal life in a number of verses. So that's what Strong says about the word that's translated eternal. So when I put all those things together, I see a picture of an infinitely just, yet eternally patient, heavenly Father. And just a couple quick verses about that. First Timothy 1.16 says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. And 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Not willing for any to perish. So that picture, in fact, may best be represented by the father of the prodigal son, looking longingly down the road and anticipating his child coming home, despite that child having previously rejected all that the father stood for. But failing to live with Christ as our Lord and Savior has consequences, and those who die after a life on earth having rejected Christ do not deserve to enter directly into the father's presence. But unwilling that any should perish, God submits them to a restorative punishment and patiently waits. Well, how long does he wait? I think one very important concept that often appears in the Bible is that the punishment and the sin are related in magnitude, uh, in Old Testament terms, an eye for an eye. 
And so here's the picture that God gave me one day while I was discussing these concepts with my wife. It was so powerful to me that I literally broke down in tears as I shared it in that moment. And every time I've shared it since, I've choked up again. Now, here it is. Many Christians simply love to use Hitler as the proof of the need for hell. After all, under his leadership, six million Jews and five million others were tortured and slaughtered and about 20 million more died trying to defeat or to support his attempt at empire building in the European theater. So in some sense, I must agree with that argument. Hitler deserves to pay for his crimes against mankind and against God. Assuming he stole on average 50 or 60 years of life from each victim of the Holocaust and of the war in Europe, Hitler probably deserves about 2 billion years of punishment to repay his sin. 2 billion years. By any human measure, that length of punishment is effectively eternity, because God is infinitely just. But equally so, God is eternally patient. So I imagine God the Eternal Father standing at the gates of his heavenly city, watching down the road for that human he created to love, the very last child still not in his presence, the bearer of the image of God despite his sins. And one day, far, far, far in the future, a bedraggled shell of a little sad man appears on the horizon. It took literally billions of years. But God is eternally patient. And so Adolf Hitler, after the seeming eternity, finally and irrevocably confronted with a God of justice, but also a father of eternal love and patience, recognized what he'd refused while he was alive on the earth that Christ's love and sacrifice paid for the sins of all mankind, even him, especially him. And he finally surrendered to that love and patience and sacrifice, and he started his long walk home. And God is eternally patient. Now, imagine the joy of the billions of other humans having lived in the rich glory of God's eternal presence for that past near eternity, watching as one by one each of their lost loved ones also finally accepted Christ's sacrifice and came home. But this one has always been missing. And so on this monumental day, they join in wonder and praise as this one final long-lost sheep appears on the horizon. And God runs to him and embraces him, this sinner who's finally completely surrendered to Christ having finally paid for his sin, for which he did not accept Christ's payment. And imagine the roaring, wondrous shout of joy as those billions of humans rejoice together in the ultimate fulfillment of all those verses about the unquenchable, immeasurable, eternal love of God, that Christ's work was shown not just to be finished, but perfect and totally complete, and this time in utter reality, not just in principle because God is eternally patient. Thanks for joining me again, and we'll talk again soon.